Welcome to EdTech Examine, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Chris Hans. And I'm Eric Christensen. This is episode 13, Burnout. So welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. I am Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. We were just talking before the show about burnout and uh, the mental health aspects of higher education, which seem to be top of mind today. It's been a strange semester. I feel like this is going to go down in the history books as something to be studied. That's my that's my inclination for the time being. You can probably even tell the way I'm talking. It's like the hoarseness in the voice has moved its way up, which is kind of funny. <laughs> Today's episode is actually pretty light. We have a few key things we want to talk about. Um, but Chris, did you want to start off with our EdTech office hours? Yeah, for sure. So there's this uh, company that has been around. It's called Descript. And Previously, they were primarily just for audio editing, but now they've actually made the forte into video editing. And, uh, you know, we've experimented a little bit. Uh, it has some really interesting uh, abilities where it'll go and transcribe the text. And then just as like if you were in Word document, you can go and just edit the text and delete whatever aspects that you didn't want to include in the video. So I thought it was like super amazing uh, piece of um, software. Uh, I mean, the one thing when we were trying it out, it kept uh, pushing us to go and ask uh, for payment, which uh, I don't blame them. Like every every time I change windows on my computer and then I go back to this, it's asking me for money. Like this is the most aggressive money ask I've ever seen. Like it just did it again. Like I've never seen anything like this. Like you can't even work in the program for more than like five seconds before it asks you to pay a monthly fee. So that's the one downside if you do get the trial. And I should say that we're we are talking about this uh, mostly because we recommended in a previous episode, which I don't I don't remember the title, but I'll put it in the show notes. We've had a couple where we we we've talked about video editing which has been timely because people are now trying to record everything for their online. So this is something that you came across. Um, and it is quite amazing. We tried, and you uploaded a sample, right? Yeah, I just uploaded a sample just to see how it would function. And uh, I mean, as they described in the, um, uh, just the uh, trial video there, you can go and edit just like if you were editing a Word document. So, I mean, I think that's pretty powerful um, with the, I'm sure it's more with the uh, paid options, but if you do go and just do a quick rundown of audio and, you know, sometimes how we say ums or ahs, apparently you can delete all those at once with one click. So it's, uh, well, and well, I guess we'll put the video on the show notes because it's hard to describe. So it's kind of... The process of using this, and this is why it's called Descript, because it creates a script automatically, a transcript for either a piece of video or audio. It didn't work super well for me for video, but I think it, 
when I did my first test, it takes a while to transcribe. And my suspicion is that it takes a little bit longer to just to transcribe the audio or the sorry, the transcript from a video file. So it worked a little bit better with the audio file I uploaded, but essentially I dragged, I created a new audio file project. I took our episode four. So our episode where we interviewed Leighton Wilkes at the University of Calgary, I uploaded it and I said, create transcript. It took, you know, a few minutes and it created a pretty perfect transcript of the entire audio. And this is kind of what their video showed. So it showed that it would create the transcript but then you could edit the video by editing the text of the audio. And it highlights all of the ums and ahs, all the things that you'd want to remove. I have tried it. It does remove them automatically, like perfect. It's perfectly clipped. And I have added in like nonsense words and it adds it in in that person's voice, which is kind of uncanny valley. So I was thinking about this and I'm wondering, I haven't tested it that much further but i'm wondering how far we can go in terms of spoofing because (laughs) could i go and type just crazy stuff into this and it would sound just like you yeah i'm sure with enough data points uh you know the ai algorithms probably could so in that case if you had a longer episode uh yeah i'm looking through this now and it's an interesting interface it's it's i think it's somewhat limited in what you can do in terms of editing so i think you can eliminate words uh you can swap words out that kind of thing i don't think you can go in like i tried just now i don't i can't go in and type you know chris said i'm a little teapot and then a little do that like it doesn't i think it's it's not that smart but it will swap out words so i swapped out a few things that were in error in here and it seemed to match whatever the the voice of the tempo of the person is what's also amazing is that when you upload this you tell it how many speakers are in this audio file and i put in three and it just puts them automatically as unknown speaker to start but i'm pretty sure that you can just say okay well this is always chris talking and then that section is always labeled as chris because it probably can tell right the audio yeah it's cool to me because This, in theory, would make video editing for faculty, even though it's not free, a lot easier. Um, I mean, you wouldn't have to listen. And and I think for in terms of accessibility, you know, Chris and I, you've talked, you and I have talked about this quite a bit. If you're doing an online course or if you're creating an open educational resource or if you're creating a MOOC, I mean, accessibility is a big deal. So you try to have closed captions for all video. YouTube does that pretty well automatically. You try to have transcripts for everything which is a humongous amount of work Um, i think zoom also can create transcripts automatically uh, from the recordings but i don't know if it works as well as this and this to me is just a huge boon at least in terms of accessibility if you want to provide all the stuff with your class with minimal editing well and i I mean that's the thing that uh how this even came up in conversation with some of the my colleagues that i know i mean I, i did a three minute video just for one of my classes. And I mean, I was also learning the software, but I I think it took me close to about nine hours to go and complete that. And that might be on the high end again, because I'm learning this piece of software. But if this, if I don't have to be conscious of what I'm saying, I don't have to go and stop and pause or what have you, and just go in one fell swoop, record it once, throw it into Descript, and then from there, just uh, go and edit out everything. 
that would certainly save a lot of time. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you on the video editing side. I think it's taken me for library session videos, which I've been putting all on YouTube. It takes a humongous amount of time. Now, granted, I haven't tried video editing in, in Descript yet. So, I mean, when I'm creating videos on how to use, say, a library search interface or tools for finding resources, I tend to crop video and I zoom in and show things and then I zoom back out. I don't know how robust the video editing feature is in Descript. I've been more impressed by the audio creation. But I think for most faculty, especially if you're if you're recording lectures, which is perfectly legitimate. I mean, there's lots of really well done recorded lectures online um, where you can have video and, you know, picture in picture where it's you, but there's also a PowerPoint. I think that's actually quite engaging. If you can generate an automatic transcript from that, take out all the ums and ahs, all the mistakes, uh, you know, move around sections and stuff and have it done, you know, in kind of a 1.5 to one time. I think that's ideal for every hour you spend. If you can get it edited, you know, in an hour, an hour and a half, that's pretty good. Uh, that's a huge boon. So I'm hoping that uh, we can secure ourselves at least a little bit more of a trial or we can play with it a bit more because it's this kind of AI focused uh, video and audio editing is really compelling for educators. And I was super skeptical, but I'm pretty impressed. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think we have too much else in terms of our ed tech office hours today. Uh, but we just wanted to follow up with that just because we had talked about video editing in the past. So we have a couple of news articles. We have two. It is a light news week on education technology. The vast majority of articles that I have seen since our last episode is all about how universities are losing tons of money because they don't have as many international students that they can charge double for and all of these things as a result of the pandemic. So that's not exactly news to me. I feel like that's uh, more of the bad news that we already anticipated. But there were a couple of interesting things. Uh, the first thing is an article from Harvard Business Review. Uh, and this, this was done at the end of September. And it's called Pandemic Pushed Universities Online. The change was long overdue. So this is something we didn't, we didn't talk about last time. I suppose we could have. But I think it's worth mentioning. Articles written by Sean Gallagher and Jason Palmer. And they make the case that universities are one of the last industries to really embrace a digital technology and go to an online environment. Now, I'm not sure that I completely agree with that claim because there's lots of very large, super high enrollment, online-only institutions, University of Phoenix Online being the famous example, but there's many others as well. In Alberta, in Canada, uh, we have Athabasca University, so there's plenty of online-only institutions. But I think they talk about how this has become a greater shift. So they mention a few interesting things in the article that I just wanted to, to glaze over, and I'd be curious to know what you have to think about this, Chris. So one of the first ones is, is that they're kind of talking about unbundling education. So when you and I did an interview with the University of Calgary's Teaching and Learning Online Network, uh, I had said that one of the things that I thought would happen as a result of kind of what we describe as emergency remote online learning, not necessarily primarily online teaching, is that there would be a vacuum 
left by uni- that universities have not filled or the vacuum would be there in, in so far as that there would be these uh, desires for higher education, but not at the, I don't want to commit to the whole degree or maybe even the whole two year degree program. So there is going to be a market for micro learning. And they kind of talk about that in this article. So they talk about how Georgia Tech and other institutions are kind of unbundling some of their degrees, um, you know, including a bunch of courses with other institutions to create large MOOCs. And I think uh, you pointed this out, Chris, they have Georgia Tech pioneered online master's in computer science program, which costs $7,000 US. uh, And now they've recently exceeded 10,000 enrollments for this fall. And I think there's other courses like this. So it's an interesting idea because they're creating a much cheaper alternative to traditional master's and undergrad degrees by going online. And I gather that they're reducing the cost by using kind of AI and analytics, which is kind of bad news for for us uh, humans. Perhaps this steals some jobs away. So they're using kind of AI uh, and, and embedding them in learning management systems to you know, keep students uh, up to date with the key enrollment times, course deadlines, you know, things that the instructor would perhaps be reminding students of manually. So they're kind of creating engagement using AI and machine learning. But then they make this case down below that they say that this change to education is important because it's going to unlock, and they say for some 71 million Americans who according to recent research, have the skills to succeed in higher wage jobs, but are systematically overlooked because they lack four-year degrees. And this struck me as really interesting. And we were talking about this before we started recording. So a degree is a really great, I would say, and because if, if you've had to take a broad range of courses in your degree, so if your program, especially I think probably for a generalist program, if it's not super overly structured, you get a really well-rounded education, which I think is the best case scenario for higher ed. But for a lot of jobs, they don't require a degree. They don't even really require an associate's degree. They just may require some courses for extra training. So the problem has always been that then people who want a degree go get one, plus all of the people who perhaps it's way overkill for. And that has kind of a couple of trade-offs. It's really expensive. And of course, there's a massive student debt crisis, particularly in the United States, because the cost of higher ed is so much there. But if everybody has a degree, even if they need it or not, then what does that do to the value, right? It's like if everyone drives a Lexus, it's no longer a, a uh, luxury vehicle. Not to say that everybody should have to have a Lexus. That's not the point. It's People should pay for what they need. Uh, and they can upgrade or, you know, get a master's or get a degree as they need it. But the problem is, is that it's kind of this all or nothing model. Uh, it's not really recognized unless you go and complete the four-year program. And if that's not necessary for you, that, you know, it makes, it's a good argument that it then freezes people out because you have to kind of go through this four-year, this four-year thing. It's also bad for people who already work in an industry where a four-year program or even a two-year program If they couldn't do that while they're working, that's a massive opportunity cost in terms of potential lost wages and stuff like that. I guess it's okay if they're able to do it while they're working and their employer pays for it at the same time. But it's interesting that 
some institutions in the states, as a result of this move, are trying to fill the gap that was left in an online environment by only having these four-year or two-year or you know credentialing systems by offering something a little bit more modular. Yeah, and I thought you know on the Georgia Tech side, like I mean, if you start computing the number, if it's ten thousand and seven thousand dollars U.S., that's seventy million dollars. You know, if uh, let's say if they only got 500 students, that would have been, you know, 70,000 per year if it's a two year program. Right. It, I think it makes sense to, to go and basically increase the, the number of enrollments. So you have the technology to go and facilitate these uh, MOOC degrees. And uh, again, like you mentioned, I mean, at the end of the day, now you have some more options you could go and take those Google micro credentials. Or you can take this master's program, which is $7,000. And I don't know. I mean, $7,000 is not that out of hand. Even this uh, University of Illinois, they have an MBA that's discounted to $22,000, which, uh, you know, typically any kind of MBA program in the U.S. is probably at least $100,000, if not more. Yeah, it's certainly cheaper. So they're kind of... they're, They're... more expensive than the Google credentials and say going to LinkedIn learning or something like that. But it's certainly not the cost of traditional university, even though it is university education. So the question I have is the following. Will these credentials, I guess if it's a master's degree, then it it should be accredited and recognized if it's from a, 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 a relatively reputable institution. What does this do, do you think, for educators, though? People who work in that industry. Does that make that? I mean, if they're using AI and stuff, does that does that make educators more content creators? Does everyone then become an educational developer because the face to face isn't there? I mean, they didn't say they didn't have synchronous. I would assume that they probably don't for 10,000 people enrolled in an online program. And if they're able to finally leverage machine learning and artificial intelligence to kind of do the some of the engagement that faculty would traditionally do. Does that kind of signal a reduction in that industry? Well, I mean, if you talk to any instructor or professor, what do they really enjoy in terms of uh, the teaching process? I'm pretty sure they don't enjoy the marking side of things. You know, do they enjoy the bureaucracy and the administration? I mean, I, I teach a course right now where I have a teaching assistant and, you know, it Given that I've taught it before and I've had experience, it's it's almost like a breeze. You just walk in, uh, you pick up where you last left off. And um, I, I think, again, you know, when we're looking at video editing software, if there's something like this Descript, that certainly will make it for a lot more easier, uh, you know, content creation for the future. And you know, especially as you mentioned, I mean, um, we talked about this offline, but some of the best um, sort of experiences that you've had with some professors are just these kind of really engaging uh, lectures that you might have had from a, a professor. And so I think the only thing that kind of is missing again, like for the, that even I miss as well when you're uh, going in this virtual environment is just the interaction after class or you know before class that you would have because there certainly is a a dynamic shift yeah i mean that's one of the things where we talked about uh, online education can be really engaging 
I, I think if you have someone who's a really engaging lecturer, it works. And you and I have talked about this. It really comes down to the person. If you may indulge me for a minute, I find this fascinating, this AI thing, partly because of my interest in open education. So for folks out there who don't know, um, while I'm a librarian, I do do research. And my research area of interest has always been open education. And the question I've always been interested in, so you have this these open courses. My colleague at the University of Alberta, Michael McNally, uh, he teaches at the library school. What we've always wanted to know is what is open enough? What is the maximal openness of a course? Um, and what, is, what does openness even mean? So we've kind of, in our research endeavors, we've tried to speculate and then do research and studies on what would the factors be of an open educational course, like open courseware, like MIT? And how would you rank their level of openness on each factor? It's kind of what we're interested in. And how this ties in is that assessment is one of the big things that we've talked about. Because the most open assessment, theoretically, would be an assessment style where somebody could, like on any online course, work their way through at their own pace, but they could self-assess their own knowledge. And the problem with that has always been that self-assessment usually means that the assessment only boils down to objective assessments, like uh, true or false, matching, things like that. Things where the instructor who created the course has determined what is right and what is wrong. It's very difficult to mark your own essay, even if you have samples. It's really difficult to mark your own uh, short answer responses and discussion board stuff, as you know, Chris, having having done this work with students. But it's interesting to me that they're going to use AI and machine learning. So I wonder if um, for these large um, MOOCs, these uh, massive online open courses, if they'll be able to kind of get over some of the assessment hurdle by using AI, perhaps to help people mark and review their written work in a way that would require instructor feedback. And it, I've been reflecting back to my use of um, Grammarly for editing, which I'm sure has some sort of machine learning and AI. And it's gotten better over the years that I've used it. It discovers more and more stuff. I, I find it really interesting because I don't find it would, it wouldn't replace, well, maybe someday, it wouldn't replace the feedback that I would give on someone's essay. But it sure does teach them a lot as they go along the way to write it. So in many ways, it's kind of the best of both worlds. And I use these tools all the time to check my work. Um, I still have to do everything manually and proofread it. But it points out these, these edge cases that would be very difficult for a person to spot, like even a copy editor. I don't think a copy editor is going to say, hey, you've used this conjunction 77% throughout all your conjunction. I mean, it's just, it can, it can tell me data points that nobody would be able to spot, even though people are very good at pattern recognition from a psychological perspective and perception. So I, I wonder sometimes if this would be really great for online learning. The, the fact that they've, hey, your assignment's going to be due. Hey, this is the withdrawal date if you're no longer interested in your course. I mean, this is the stuff that's not a very good use of faculty time faculty are expensive i think their best their time is better served with one-on-one with students or doing research or applying for grants or uh you know holding uh seminar style classes and i just wonder if this could be a good thing because it would take out some of that administrative burden that i think tends to burn people out in academic careers 
Yeah, no, for sure. And, I, you know, in one of my courses this semester, I'm actually using Google Classrooms. And this is the first time that I've actually used the, the platform. But one of the nice things, as you mentioned, uh, you go and enter in an assignment and it actually sends reminders to the students. It adds it into their calendar. They get alerts uh, so that they can get it in on time. So that, that certainly does cut down on the, the bureaucracy and the administration aspects. Yeah, and you find that's a just like a net positive for you. Well, I mean, uh, for example, today I had, uh, uh, you know, the week's over. So we had an assignment due out of the all the students. There was only one that was late. And even for that one student, I mean, they were in contact with me by email. So it certainly cut down on the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just an interesting thought that came to my mind, how AI could be leveraged in a, in a valuable way. Now, we have another article called EdTech's Answer to Remote Learning Burnout. And Chris, did you want to talk about this one? Since this is something that you highlighted for me. Yeah, for sure. So this was uh, something that was published on Adresen Horowitz's uh, blog. And obviously, they're a, a large venture capital company that's been investing in tech for a very long time. But uh, they talked about uh, how there's going to be a big shift in terms of remote learning with the advent of technology and uh, specifically uh, they are looking at a lot of ed tech companies are taking cues from other industries like gaming entertainment and uh, just reinventing the overall experience for online education so some of the aspects that they talked about is uh, instead of in the past you would go and sell to a school now you're going to go and actually focus on selling to the parents Uh, you know, before you would be limited in terms of the instructors. Now you have this global pool of instructors. Uh, it doesn't matter what the geography is or the subject matter or experience level. You actually will have choice. Uh, you can have uh, many more interactive lessons. Um, uh, we already talked about some of that AI-driven uh, aspects for analytics, for progress tracing, feedback, you may actually be able to go and create some proprietary curriculum. Uh, again, uh, there's going to be some supplementation from AI and other software. There's going to be some modular learning. But uh, especially on the uh, the first aspect, the first wave that they described was dominated by MOOCs with these free, massively open online courses uh, that were partnerships with leading universities, professors, where people could just enroll at their own time uh, and uh, pursue it at their own pace. But now that's uh, is shifting for a number of uh, new phases that they've identified. So tools for schools and educators uh, in terms of pre-recording content, tutoring, tutor matching. And then what they're describing as the third phase is going to be after school and uh, homeschool platforms. And uh, beyond that, even uh, YouTube in its own right has now become um, an online school. And so you have like a massive opportunity even for them as a platform for curated, high quality live education experiences. So it's a uh, it's very interesting uh, article that they talked about because, uh, you know, with the, the, the pandemic, it, a lot of times like... Again, ed tech companies, they would have tried to go and sell to the schools with often mixed results. It's usually a long sales cycle. And uh, with that business to business model, it was definitely hard to go and uh, tap into it, especially because there's other stakeholders beyond uh, just the teachers 
uh, there's you know the parents the the actual students themselves and so now it's actually shifted a little bit uh, where they can actually go and sell uh, the technology and so now parents they can cut through some of that red tape um, the teachers themselves if they want they can actually become maybe free agents using some of these platforms uh, the MOOCs they're thinking that they're going to probably get a makeover which again our previous article it looks like they're already doing that with Georgia Tech and certain aspects like math for example uh, it's almost going to be like a gamification where maybe you might actually have Mickey Mouse uh, Disney type of um, uh, characters going and teaching lessons maybe in coding drawing math uh, but again, this now makes it much more of an experiential, interactive way. And uh, with YouTube, who knows, they might even go and unbundle some aspects uh, uh, where, uh, again, with the pandemic, there's more and more people going and accessing um, content through their platform. And hopefully this software, this, uh, you know, the, whether it's AI or what have you, it'll actually go and free up the teachers from some of those um administrative bureaucratic uh, those uh, what they're describing as after school drudgery and focus in on what they actually uh, what is their most valuable uh, term to focus which is the actual teaching and uh, you know working with the students yeah and this this talked a lot about k-12 this article was that what it, it was primarily focused on k-12 right yeah yeah but I mean, it's a, it's applicable for even on the, the higher education as well. It makes me think of what higher ed would look like. You talk about free agents, because one of the issues we have now is that you know universities depend so highly on on sessional instruction, um, and I wonder if this would create more opportunities for people who who are really good educators uh, to move about or to take on more experience without having to be in that geographic location like you said like i imagine there's like tons of great educators maybe in like the uk or something who would love to teach a course in canada um but because university has been so dependent on face-to-face i wonder if that would create a lot of opportunities and vice versa yeah no and i mean even like right now this semester i have students that aren't even necessarily in calgary or even in alberta uh there's some that are operating like you know the they're in um, BC. There's some that are even overseas. I have one student. It's the, it's the kind of most uh, interesting thing. Uh, he's actually was supposed to do a, an exchange to Calgary from France, but because of the way that the whole pandemic and everything happened, so he's basically doing a virtual exchange. So he's, he's still in France, but he's taking his courses here. And so it's uh, it's interesting how things worked out. But uh, I mean, I talked to him afterwards and unfortunately it was just going to be too late. Like he wouldn't be able to get in the courses that he would have needed for his degree. Interesting. Yeah, we talk about people being separated here and not having that face-to-face connection. Uh, at least people in the same city can theoretically meet with each other, even if it is in the snow-filled tundra that is Calgary right now. But imagine being in France we're taking online courses where the rest of your cohort overwhelmingly is in another country. Well, and I mean, that brings up other challenges uh, just from a logistics standpoint, because imagine, I mean, I know of students that are overseas right now in Nigeria and India and Japan. And imagine if you had to go and operate on our time zone. And that's why, again, I, I think it's a, 
I highly advocate for a asynchronous model if you can, because uh, you don't know what uh, people are dealing with and, uh, you know, what kind of barriers that they might be uh, up against. Yeah, you make a good point, which is a great segue to our discussion item this month. So this is your suggestion, Chris. I thought it was great. Um, and it was particularly uh, based on, or I should say it was based primarily on some of our observations this semester teaching. So uh, we want to talk a little bit about mental health teaching this fall. And this fall being significant because this is not as emergency teaching as it was in the winter, but uh, still emergency teaching to some degree. So I thought we would just chat about uh, trends and our experience that we're seeing so far with regard to mental health, both in terms of the student and the instructor side. Yeah, and I, I think one aspect that I uh, noticed, especially interacting with my students, is unbeknownst to me, maybe uh, a lot of people uh, have taken more of that asynchronous approach and not only done that, but they've also taken what maybe in a, a traditional semester you might have had you know, maybe a test or two, one major term project, and instead has broken out all the those various deliverables into a bunch of smaller deliverables. So maybe they're low stakes, but much higher frequency. And now as a student, if you have a full course load, let's say four or five courses, and every week, or even maybe every day, you have something due, it becomes somewhat problematic for them just from a time management standpoint. Yeah, this is something I'm starting to see. So I, I see fewer courses right now, uh, at least the online versions of the courses that I support as a librarian, that have the same assignments. It looks, seems like a lot of the assignments have been reworked, like you've suggested, where they've been broken out. I've been thinking about this as perhaps a, a contributor to the, I would say, substantially higher level of student stress that I've seen overall, because it's even like you said, if it's um, less or, or lower stakes assignments, it still probably doubles somebody's time management necessities, at least in terms of what skills they have to have. So I didn't have a problem in university having very long research papers for history and political science that were worth 30% of my grade. In fact, in some ways that was, yes, high stakes, high pressure, but you know, unless someone really didn't follow the instructions, very rarely did they totally bomb the essay. They still got, you know, a fair chunk of that, that percentage. And it was much easier to put the deadlines in your calendar. That's one of the things I noticed with these, with these, especially courses that are designed for online, where you have a discussion board responses, and you have all these little things, there's almost a daily task or a daily completion grade or something you have to hand in you know, multiple times per week. And I just wonder if that is the best way to go for online learning. Well, and I, I think that on the flip side, like let's say, for example, like discussion boards. So for myself, and I think it also comes down to how you structure it, right? But I, I give the students a full week. So they have a full week to go and complete their discussion board item. I mean, if they ideally, they probably should do it maybe during their scheduled class time. But, you know, everybody kind of procrastinates and then they might leave it to the last minute. Uh, 
I think this is one way that you can go and uh, create an atmosphere for engagement because you would have had those classroom discussions where uh, students will be able to go and voice their opinions. And especially in some ways, I think it's even maybe more democratic because some of those students that would have been perhaps a little bit more introverted or quiet in the classroom environment now because of the way that it's structured with the discussion forum, they are also going and sharing their opinion, right? And then we're all learning from one another. So, but but again, it's just, uh, I've noticed uh, in terms of my experience, like in one of my classes, I have a discussion board where it's every week they have something and several students are not completing their discussion board items. And, you know, again, that's their prerogative. But uh, when I've spoken to some of the, the students, I, what their uh, response to that is, again, it comes down to project management or time management. And uh, with every class having something due, it becomes something where they have to make a choice and sacrificing. I'm also seeing it uh, differently from a kind of an assignment support perspective. So typically I've seen or I've been asked to kind of interpret, so to speak, how one would approach a given assignment. So the assignment, let's say it's a paper, is clear to the student in terms of what the output has to be. But it's the the approach. It's like, I'm not really sure how to find these kinds of sources. I'm not sure how to create a search strategy. And even in an online environment, we kind of go back and forth. But one of the things I'm starting to notice is that not only, well, actually, I have to help them with that regardless. But the first question that's asked is, what is this that I'm doing? And that's that's what's interesting to me, because it I, I'm seeing a little bit more uh, uncertainty regarding what the output or what the assignment is about to begin with. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's an aspect in online teaching that is going to be the uh, perhaps one of the bigger hurdles for instructors to figure out. Like you're experienced at this, so you know the value of that very explicit written communication and having to have things very clear. But in a face-to-face course, There's so many end of class, I would say, opportunities where the instructor will go, by the way, remember your assignments due. Here's why we're doing it. This is what you expect to do. And all of those little reinforcements are gone. And now 100% reliance is on, or perhaps some people are relying 100% onto the assignment outline, say, in the description. So I'm seeing a lot more questions come my way. And faculty are sorting this out and they're doing the best that they can. They, they can. So it's not a criticism, but that's where I'm wondering if uh, a lot of this could be remedied. Um, some more education or instruction. I know our academic development centers and our instructional designers at universities are, are working around the clock to solve this. But what is the best way to kind of make sure that we replicate like those little experiences in a face-to-face course online? You know, fair enough, Eric, but at the same time, like there's, I'm sure you've probably seen this, whereas students, they may just skip class, right? And so, and I think that's what's happening. Like if I have a synchronous session, right? Like let's say if I have a, a class of 35, on average, about half the class shows up, right? And so, I mean, again, I'm not here to go and babysit and uh, have students come. That's their prerogative. And, uh, you know, they have a responsibility to figure out how they're going to go and allocate their time. Uh, but I, 
I think what's happening is uh, people, again, the, the students are getting overwhelmed and they're not used to learning online where a lot of it is, uh, it's your own responsibility from a, uh, reading the instructions. And when you pick up the assignment, let's say the, you know, this actually happened to me last week. Uh, I've had students where they have a major assignment, it's worth 25% of their grade. And several students have not, they didn't even complete the assignment. And then I had to go and send out reminders that if you don't complete this assignment, that in fact, in our course outline, there is a, um, a requirement that if you, anything that's over 10%, if you do not complete it, you actually fail the course. And even after that, people, they didn't get in touch with me. I had several students that basically just withdrew from the course altogether. No contact whatsoever with me. And I, I mean, I highly encourage this with any student. Uh, and I mean, I tried my best. I actually sent out multiple emails reminding the students to get in touch if there's, a, if there's some sort of exceptional or extenuating circumstances that maybe we can go and make some adjustments. But if you do not communicate, I mean, that's, uh, again, their responsibility. And so at, at that point, there's not much that you can do. I wonder, too, if this is the feedback loop, because you make a good point. It is their prerogative, and I totally agree. I wonder if that's creating the feedback loop that's feeding into the mental health, or they have perhaps the negative mental health aspects for faculty. So if you're getting a much lower attendance rate in a synchronous online session, um, Let's say that there's, let's say at any given time, 10% in a face-to-face are not there. I don't know if that's accurate, but we'll just arbitrarily use that. Let's say it's upwards of 50% now, or maybe only two-thirds are showing up to class in an online environment. Like, because you said, uh, the skills for self-directed learning aren't there, especially coming right out of a K-12 institution, because that's much more handheld. I'm wondering... If that's causing some of the faculty stress, because, of course, they're probably much more inundated now with last minute or follow up requests unless they've proactively sent those out like you have. Yeah. And I mean, again, that's something where I think you have to a lot of times as faculty, you have to over communicate. So one of the things that I do is uh, I usually double it up. I, I go and post it as an announcement using our learning management system. But then I also send out an email just to make sure, who knows, maybe the, the, the students don't get that information. So you, you double it up that way, and hopefully it gets through. But at the same time, I mean, I've even, as we just described in our burner phone episode, there's students that will go and text me. And texting me the weekend before something is due, I mean, I still respond. I don't know how many people would actually do that. And it probably isn't from my aspect, you know, from a mental health standpoint, isn't probably the best thing to do, but I go and make that effort because, uh, again, I don't want to go and have a situation where students uh, don't have the information that they need. But at the same time, there's, again, I, I think just like how you would have in a face-to-face environment, there's people who feel somewhat reluctant to go and even ask those questions. I mean, maybe they're making assumptions that, uh, that we're too busy or we won't you know, get back to them. And uh, uh, again, I think that they should uh, maybe communicate uh, and reach out because, you know, if you don't try, then and if you don't bring it to somebody's attention, then nothing will really happen from it. And, you know, there's certain courses over time, like there's a, it's almost like a bit of a learning curve, but I I get a, I've 
kind of in one course that I've taught for several years online, I pretty much have a frequently asked questions type of like, you know, document. And in fact, I've all already structured it where uh, I'll go and send out announcements to the students based on those frequently asked questions. I mean, one thing that I'm even looking at doing, and I've done this in the past, I've actually created like it started off as an email response and it became like a three page like document that I gave as feedback. Um, and, it, you know, some of the best practices that I told uh, students is that, you know, you should find out what your instructors, your professors want, because ultimately they're the ones who are grading your deliverable. And so you should communicate with them to figure out what their expectations are, because if it's not clear in the assignment, then you need to be aware of that. And, uh, you know, certain things like I know for myself, like I'm not going to go and penalize somebody for a, a citation for missing like a period or something. I mean, that, that's just at the end of the day, as long as it, the citation is there, but not everybody's going to be uh, marking things the way that I am. Right. And so, again, that's where I think you have to have that clear communication with your instructor. Uh, I don't I find in this day and age, though, like when we have all the technology, like back in the day to go and create a citation from scratch. That was quite a bit of work, and especially when you had to go and bring up the microfiche and photocopy something, and, you know, and now everything's electronic. Uh, microfiche. Holy <laughs> shoot. That's like way beyond my time. Microfiche. <laughs> uh, that's that's uh, that's what I had to do back in the day is uh, to get the microfiche loaded into a machine, zoom in and out, print the article. And that's how you would get your research. And uh, nowadays it's at your fingertips. And with a lot of these online databases that we have through the universities, it'll even give you the citation. So I don't even know how these issues come up with the, you know, citation errors. Well, you make a good point about, and I think related to mental health. And we have some, we do have, uh, for folks listening, we do have some, some suggestions and uh, some listed and we can talk about our experiences, but I do find that in some ways the automatically generated partial solutions. So let's say the grammarlies of the world, the automatic citation generators on library databases. I sometimes wonder if that they were designed with the purpose of making things easier, but in some regards in the long run, these technologies make things a lot more difficult. So I'll give you an example because the citation one is good. Those automatically generated citations vary in quality depending on where they're generated. I would say that our main library search interface at, MR, at Mount Royal actually has a pretty good one, but they're often broken. So often the, you know, APA, you don't have the author's first name, but that's listed. Uh, the title's in all caps. Uh, you know, there's no digital object identifier or permalink to the article. So as people become more reliant on these, even though taking that automatically generated citation and editing it, in theory, would be easier, I find that when that citation is wrong people are a little bit more lost than had they been used to doing it from scratch. And it's funny because I've done sessions where, you know, we're talking about creating a research paper and a question. These are, you know, capstone level students and they're all freaking out over a citation. And I'm thinking, this is the easiest part. 
And I've done and I've done APA sessions where I've said it's author, date, title, source. That's the order. And then you apply that framework in a slightly different uh, formatting depending on the type of source that you use. So once I've explained it like that, it's so much easier. But I wonder sometimes if these technologies make it more difficult. Have we come to a point where the handholding of technology has actually made things worse? You know, that's a good point. I mean, if let's say, for example, in Microsoft Word, if you relied on the grammar aspect of, uh, uh, you know, the, the program, there's a lot of things that it probably won't pick up. And that's where Grammarly is, is that much better at it. I mean, even Microsoft Word does have the ability to go and create citations within the program itself. But then it requires you to go and type it in yourself. Looks like we'll have some more dog barking for the episode. <laughs> I love it. It's like a signature. Well, I mean, this is probably a good segue to our ed tech tips because related, we wanted to talk about this because we did have some strategies, um, just a few ed tech tips, some apps that I'm recommending. And we can we can uh, ad lib here for mental health uh, such, such technology. So I don't know if you've used any of these, Chris. These are both... Uh, these are two apps that I've used in the past for both iOS and or and Android, I believe. And we'll put links to these in the show notes. They're kind of breathing apps. I was joking with you at the beginning of the episode that, uh, you know, that we have a kind of an acidic kind of work because it's very intellectual based. It's very uh, detail oriented. It's hard to keep up on. So it's easy for people to kind of hyperventilate and get worked up. So there's two breathe app, breathing exercise apps uh, on iOS and Android, which are pretty helpful. One of them is called Breathing Zone. Uh, the other one's called Pause. They essentially do the same thing. Uh, it guides you through kind of a, a breathing activity. When I was totally overwhelmed as a new faculty member and I had tenure requirements and committees to work on and I had teaching to do and I had research deadlines and presentations uh, there's so many balls that you have to juggle both as a student in higher education as well as being an educator that I found taking a second to breathe deeply and think about what I was doing in the moment was actually incredibly helpful so these are usually uh, these apps usually provide a couple of options so you can kind of they're kind of deep breathing, kind of meditative techniques. So you can kind of work your way up from, uh, you know, a 30 second routine all the way up to kind of a three minute routine. Uh, and I've kind of worked my way up. I don't really use these that much anymore, but I actually did find them pretty effective uh, in terms of their ability to kind of be calm. Because I think a lot of the things that people get worked up about in university aren't really anything to get worked up about. They're all doable if you make a plan. Um, have you used these, Chris? I don't know if you've used any of these ones before. No, I, I haven't used these apps. Uh, one that I've used in the past is Oak for meditation. Oh, yeah. And um, the other thing that uh, I've been relying more on is my Apple Watch. It has a breathe app that's built in and it, it just on its own, it just reminds you to breathe. Uh, it also reminds you to get up and stand up if you've been sitting for too long. Um, so I, I think I, for myself, I find that very, really useful. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I want to talk about, and we, the reason I want to bring it up, and I think maybe Chris, we, 
we'll have to do another or maybe return to these productivity technology type. Um, what's the term? Themes in future episodes. We talked a little bit about in Capture, Configure, Control. That episode, we talked a little bit about the academic Cal Newport, and he has a bunch of deep work techniques that are some analog, some are technology-based, and we talked about his strategy. He's actually come out with a, he's a bit, well, he's a big fan of this idea of time blocking in calendars. And I've been doing this this year, and I have to say it's been incredibly effective. So if you have an open calendar, like many of us do, we use a, we're using Google apps at Mount Royal. So everybody can see, I've allowed it. So everybody can see where my calendar is open. If you leave your calendar too open, people will find a way to fill it. They'll fill it with meetings that don't need to take place. No offense to people who've done this to me. I have probably also initiated these meetings. So it's we don't know necessarily what's a good use of the other person's time. Sometimes they could answer a question. Maybe they've answered it before in their email. This is just becomes a problem when you're, you don't live in someone else's head. So both time blocking uh, on a Google Calendar, but also manual time blocking. I noticed that I'm seeing a trend that a lot of students... Uh, that I work with really do like to have an analog alternative, probably because they're embedded in a learning management system. They have a computer, they have all these documents everywhere, they're using the databases, they're kind of inundated, and they're made to use all the technologies. So time blocking in your calendar, and the, the motto that Cal Newport uses, which I love, is give every minute of your day a job. That's the intent. I try to do this every day. I don't always succeed. I do leave time open deliberately so people can book appointments with me. That's my job. But I try to give uh, every minute of my day a job so I have a consistent morning routine where I write every single morning. I have a, a time where I try to work out every day or do posture exercises to correct uh, the sitting that I do at a desk, even if I were standing, um, for my physio exercises. I, I try to give every minute of the day a job and Cal Newport came out with a manual or an analog time blocking calendar uh, where you can do that on paper and I, I point this out because I've tried so many productivity strategies over the years I, I find it fascinating but I think of all the productivity strategies the one I've always come back to is no I'm going to block this time off this is the time I'm going to spend working on my reassignment I'm not going to look at my email I'm going to close the email tab I'm going to do that stuff and then I've actually accomplished something and it relates to kind of those breathing apps I think where the stress comes with students because they're being a librarian students are uh some people might not know this incredibly candid with their librarians because they're not talking to someone who's evaluating them they're talking to somebody who is from an outside perspective. So they kind of described to me the anxiety. And I'm not a counselor. I can, you know, I don't claim to be a mental health professional, but I do find that students have told me that if they have employed time blocking, I just say, you know, don't answer your phone. Just, just really enjoy immersing yourself in one thing at a time and being deliberate and deep about it and then move on to the next thing because there's no there's no such thing as multitasking at least in terms of um, activities that require an in-depth focus yeah no and i think again that makes sense where um, i think some of the best practices if you look at for doing any type of project 
is to go and have that focused time to go and complete, um, you know, even let's say, I mean, one thing that I, I, we did discuss this earlier on in one of the earlier episodes, but, you know, if you can take a full project and break it down into a, a bunch of smaller manageable parts, it makes it that much easier. And let's say, for example, like your first task, if you're going to be doing a research paper is just figuring out what the topic is going to be and then figuring out the the question that you're going to address and and then doing the research and you know figuring out your how you're going to lay out your argument or your essay yeah and i mean i actually did a library session recently where i i had a slide on a on a powerpoint i don't use a lot of powerpoint in online teaching but i did for this one and the slide that i had up was you know, how Eric would approach this project. And I said, you know, you're asked to do, they had to do a very in-depth annotated bibliography. So annotations for sources are not particularly long, but they had to do a lot of them because this is an upper-level class. And they had to have a research question. They had to tie all of these annotations back to their research question in preparation for two subsequent assignments, meaning that this is uh, these assignments are scaffolded, that they build on each other. And I said, with time blocking as kind of my framework, this is how I would develop develop this. So I kind of, I cleared everything out of my Google calendar. I hypothetically made a student calendar and I said, here is how, so I hid all my work stuff. And I said, here is how much time I would dedicate to each of these components. I had a to-do list um, and we've talked about Trello and to-do lists in the past. Maybe we'll come back to that because there's some other really cool stuff out there. But and I kind of broke that down into a list, like all the parts. And then I said, well, how would I space this out? You know, and I actually didn't give myself more in my, if I said I had to complete this in a week, I really didn't give myself one task to go towards that assignment per day. And I broke it down and students kind of left being like, wow, I could do this for everything. So I think this idea of time blocking and, and I'm not always successful at this. There's all sorts of projects that I've put off and I didn't come up with a a subsequent list or break it down into parts. And now it seems like this monster that I have to tackle. I think we all go through that to a certain extent, but I think you make a good point about project management, right? Actually, you know, on a, on a side note, so I have a, a colleague of mine that uh, is going to be guest lecturing in my class. And it's a, an interesting question that she brought up is how do I make this dynamic? Because now we're in the zoom environment. I mean, I booked this a, a while back And so one of the things that I suggested is maybe just using certain um, technologies out there like Top Hat or Kahoot or um, Slido, Slido. where you can go and have some questions or some polling or something where the students can now interact and then use those to go and make the the session a little bit more dynamic. And then beyond that, I I mean, I've had this um, now uh, in every semester that we've had this course and uh, I'm like you know just make sure that you tell your stories because those were I mean overall the the session itself is pretty solid and it's uh, the actual storytelling that I find uh, it really resonates with the students and even myself that that's what I walk away with yeah how are how we've learned as people as well as being instructors Well, that about wraps up this episode. Chris, do you want to tell people how they can contact you? Yeah, so you can get a hold of me through my website, Chris Hans, K-R-I-S-H-A-N-S dot C-A. 
uh, on there have my affiliated um, organizations. And on Twitter, it's at Chris Hans. And I'm Eric Christensen. Uh, you can reach me uh, through my website, which is Eric, E-R-I-K, uh, Christensen.net. You can also contact me through Twitter. You can DM me. Uh, you can ask us questions through our uh, about EdTech Examined. If you have uh, education technology questions that you want to answer on the show, you can you can tag Chris and or and or I uh, with the EdTech Office Hours hashtag. And my Twitter account is eg Christensen. Everything I do is kind of linked to my homepage. Well, I think that about wraps it up. Thanks very much, Chris. Yeah, thank you. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTechExamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time.